0: I want to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Judges as we look at this last message in Unfaithful, really the second part of uh, the study on Samson, which could be a lot longer. uh, But I want us to talk about God's man who didn't follow God's plan. And then in a few minutes, we're going to sing some more. This is one of those nights where we do a message a little earlier, and then we kind of end with singing. We've got some folks to present tonight, some new members to present. So uh, I want us to look at the Word, and I want us to talk about this man of great potential and of great failure. The one reason you know that the Bible is true is because it never casts its characters as mythical demagogues or Hollywood superstars. Here's a man who had all the potential in the world. But he was consumed by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. One by one, he breaks his Nazarite vows that his parents had been given before he was ever born. And in the end, he's a tragic story. He is a reminder to us even thousands of years later, let him that think he stands take heed lest he fall. He's a reminder to us that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Here, here's a man who had every opportunity. In fact, we, just a few weeks ago, we drove very near to his hometown, uh, and that area is actually being bombed uh, as we speak. And we drove very near to it, where, uh, and also where uh, some of his feats Uh, Great feats took place, but here's a man who, in the end, has a mark on his life that ruins him. That should be very familiar to us just in the news in this past week. Very decorated men who have served their country in the military have made foolish decisions. that forever will be a footnote in their story about how they finished, and they didn't finish well. I want you to look, first of all, at the separated by sovereign act of God. Here's a, three facts that stand out in the life of Samson. First of all, he had a unique birth. He had a unique birth. His, his parents were like Abraham and Sarah. They had no children. And so at the, uh, the birth announcement is a supernatural intervention, by God, God was going to give this couple a son. Secondly, it was a u- unique life. He was a Nazarite. He was to be a Nazarite, set apart, different from all the other kids. God had a unique purpose for his life. God knew what He was going to raise him up to do. And thirdly, he had a unique calling, because the scripture says, "He shall begin to deliver my people from the Philistines." So he was one to begin this process. I love what Gary Ingrig says in his commentary on on Judges. He knew the code, but he didn't understand the concept. The point of the Nazarite vow was not separation from, but separation unto. He lacked love for God by his position— Samson was dedicated to the will of God, but in his heart, he wasn't dedicated to the God whose will it was. His separation was formal and legalistic. Now again... We're talking about separation, and we won't take the time to read it, but in in John 17, 15 through 19, Jesus talks about separation and sanctification, about being set apart. And we are called to be set apart, not to be completely out of the world. We're to be in it, like we've said many times. But we're to be set apart, distinctive, something that stands out about us that shows the world that Christ is in control of our lives. Here's what to be separated means. It means I am controlled by Christ, I am surrendered to Christ, and I am allowing His Spirit to reproduce Himself in me. I am controlled by Christ, surrendered to Christ, and allowing His Spirit to be reproduced in me. That's set apart. Now, let's look at the second thing, and we're going to be in uh, Judges chapter 14 and a little bit of chapter 15 here. Sinful because of selfish acts. Chapter 14 through 16 are punctuated with pictures of how strong Samson really was. I mean, this guy was amazing. And, and by the way, he, he wasn't the Hulk, and he wasn't Captain America, and he wasn't Iron Man. Because if he had been all of those, you would have looked at him and known the secret of his strength. I mean, if the Hulk walked out there to address the enemies of God, I said, well, I know why, where he's from. Why do you think they kept saying, find out what his strength is? Because on outward appearances, he was an average man. But he was empowered by God. Look at chapter 14 and verse 6. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that he tore him as one tears a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand, but he didn't tell his father and mother what he had done. Verse 19, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of them and took their spoil. Chapter 15 and verse 14, When he came to Lehi, the Philistines shouted as they met him, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. Now, have you noticed in all three of these, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily so that the ropes that were on his arms were as flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds dropped from his hands, and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, so he reached out and took it and killed a thousand men with it. Now that's one guy that the spirit of God is on, (laughs) you know, I, I mean, you know, you take a jawbone of a donkey and you can whip a thousand men with it. Don't mess with this guy in the school parking lot. I mean, he is a serious guy that you're dealing with, but here's a man who destroyed himself all of these times. When the Spirit of the Lord is on him mightily, he destroyed himself. Here's two things you need to know. First of all, we are accountable for our advantages. We are accountable for our advantages. Listen, folks, we've been blessed. We've been blessed. I mean, Ron Dunn used to say if the liberals had heard what we've heard in our lifetime, they would have already repented. We hear it, and it just kind of goes right over our head. We are accountable for the blessings that we have and the advantages that we have. Secondly, even the best start in life can be squandered. You can have great potential, but the best start in life can be squandered. What's important to remember is while the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson mightily so he could do physical deeds, the Spirit of God is in us so we can do great spiritual deeds. Colossians chapter 2 in verse 9, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. Now look at chapter 14 in verse 1, and we'll see one of these fatal flaws that Samson had. Chapter 14 and verse 1, Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore get her for me as a wife. Then his father and his mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. Lust of the eyes. Lust of the flesh. Pride of life. In a, in a culture where marriages were arranged or approved, He basically said, I'm not going to listen to anybody's counsel about this. I just want what I want. And and here are the indicators of his selfishness. It was lust at first sight. (laughs) It wasn't love at first sight. It was lust at first sight. She looks good to me. I mean, it was all driven by the physical. There was no heart. There was no emotion in it. It was just driven by looks. Secondly, it was a rejection of authority it was a rejection of authority. And so here's Samson living out the two times in Judges where it says there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. So there's no check and balance in his life. There was was nobody that he would answer to. Although he was a man who the Spirit of God mightily came on, he ignored God's call and God's requirements and God's perimeters and boundaries for his life and just went after what he wanted. He was a living, breathing example. He was worldly in his thinking, worldly in his thinking. He was removed from all self-discipline, and he was controlled by his passions. Now, why is it that we say abstinence until marriage. Is it because we want to keep people from having a good time? Is it just because we don't want people, young people to get sexually transmitted diseases? No, it's because that hook gets in your heart and in your head and it pulls you down and it makes you think differently about the opposite sex and it affects you even in your marriage. And so it is a higher goal than just, you shouldn't do it because you might catch a disease. I mean, that got, that's got to be the lowest motive. By the way, an incredible percentage of teenagers are walking around with sexually transmitted diseases that cannot be cured and there is no known cure for. And some of them don't even know they have them. So... Let's just think through what this command is about, this separation is about. This separation is a protection not only of the body, it's a separation of the heart. That our hearts are set aside so that when we give ourselves to someone, we give ourselves to the person that God has for us. And when we destroy that separation, we lose something that God intended to say for marriage. When God said, wait… He didn't say that because he wanted to kill all the fun. He said it because he wanted to protect us from the evil that can be in our hearts. So I mean, you look at it. No matter what he did, this is interesting, Samson never got the right woman. I mean, You talk about a guy that showed up at the bar with too many pickup lines and got the wrong woman. I mean, everywhere he turned, he's always with the wrong woman. And if I, by the way, you know, if he'd have learned his lesson with his wife that he picked when his counsel was, that's not who you need to marry, he would have never been with Delilah, and we know how that turned out for him. Secondly, no matter how much he was blessed, he was never the man God planned him to be. He was blessed but he fell short of God's plan for his life, and his spiritual decline continued. All right, let's just look down in chapter 14 real quickly. In in chapter 14, verses 7 through 9, there's a downward journey. It says he went down to Timnah. That was physical and spiritual. When he started that journey, he started on a path that he didn't get off of until the day he died. He went down to Timnah. When, when the Scripture talks about going down, it's not always just talking about direction and geography. It's talking about an attitude and a mindset. And then there was verse 10, there was a drunken party. How many things have happened <laughs> in drunken parties? By the way, he wasn't supposed to drink. Uh, I don't know if you remember this. you remember the guy that was at Roswell Street that was at a party? And I remember getting the phone call. And there, was, there were kids from two rival high schools at a party, kegs of beer everywhere, unsupervised, parents staying in the house while they think their kids are behaving themselves. And it ends up being a knife pulled in a fight between a bunch of football players, and one kid gets killed, and another kid is so drunk he doesn't remember, and he thinks he did it. And he spent years in prison until it was proven that he didn't. All because... He went to one high school party with alcohol. How long, how long was he in prison? Ten years? Ten years. And then proven he didn't do it. Can, can I just tell you something? You, if you want to debate alcohol, you can do it. Can I just tell you something? Nothing good ever happens in that environment. Nothing good ever happens. And we got people saying, oh, we need to be free. I'll tell you, freedom doesn't happen there. Bondage happens there. Addiction happens there destruction of lives happens there. I've buried teenagers who have been killed because they've been drunk and driving. So before I chase that rabbit too far, let me keep going. And then there was a drunken riddle, verses 11 through 14, not a proposal of a man controlled by God. He was a man whose mind was controlled by alcohol. And then the downfall in verses 15 through 20. Ultimately, here's a guy who lost his bet, who lost his honor, and who lost his God. That's not much of a takeaway. Verse chapter 16 and verse 1. Boy, you want to talk about history. Now, Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. You got to think by the time you get to chapter 16, this is not the first time that Samson has visited a harlot. It's just the one that's pointed out that's gonna be his downfall. Chapter 16 and verse four. After this, it came about that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. Now, what's amazing about him here is he is so self-deluded and so blinded by his sin that he knows that Delilah is trying to trap him so that he can be captured by the enemy. But lust has ruled his head and his heart, and he's not thinking, and he keeps caving in. By this time, he's down to breaking every one of the Nazarite vows except one. Don't cut your hair. He's broken them all. And now he's down to one vow left. And he caved in because Delilah kept saying, please tell me it hurts my feelings that you don't tell me. You must not love me if you don't tell me. (laughs) Well, just look at it. Chapter 16, verse 15. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have deceived me these three times and have not told me where your great strength is. Look at verse 16. It came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. That's the kind of woman you want to live with every day, isn't it? Doesn't Proverbs say something about that kind of woman? I mean, his soul was annoyed to death. So he said to her all that was in his heart and said to her, now, what I would have said is, if I got to live with you, shoot me now. I mean, <laughs> but he said to her, a razor has never come on my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb, which already he had violated three of the four. If I am shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I will become weak and be like any other man. Verse 19, she made him sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his hair. And then she began to afflict him, and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Then the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes, and they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze chains. And he was a girder in the prison." Look at this quote by John Hunter. In a strange way, he had counted on the presence of the Lord. He had taken it for granted, assuming that God would put up with any and every sin he cared to commit, but he found out the truth too late. Now, every one of us knows somebody that lives up to that quote. Just leave it there for a minute. He assumed that God would put up with any and every sin he cared to commit. That's trifling with the grace of God and with the goodness of God. And when he found out that God wouldn't, it was too late. Look at the last thing, some sobering thoughts about temptation. Here's a man who obviously didn't handle temptation right. One commentator writes about Uh, in the current context of Samson. Today, the desirability expectations of men and women are being elevated to ridiculous heights. We are being brainwashed by novels, films, and TV into basing our estimate of our own self-worth on the competence of our sexual performances or the variety of our sexual experiences. Our eyes, like Samson's, are daily being subtly trained by a thousand adverts to assess the desirability of the opposite sex in purely physical terms. You just got to imagine that when Samson was captured and he was girded in the prison and his eyes had been gouged out, that somebody walked by him maybe that had heard about or had even seen some of his great feats and mocked him and laughed at him and said, didn't you used to be Samson? How many believers have fallen into traps where they used to be something or they used to be somebody, but they played around the edges and their lives ended up a wreck. I want to give you Eight principles about temptation. First of all, compromise leads to conquest. Compromise leads to conquest. The reality of compromise is you can't control where it takes you, it'll lead to the enemy conquering you in some area of your life. Secondly, sin looks good for a season. It looks attractive. It looks luring. It's, it's like a, a, a fish hook that's baited with the right, kind of, the right kind of hook and the right kind of bait to get the kind of fish that you're trying to catch. And Satan, it looks good for a season. I mean, do you think Satan's going to tempt anybody by something and you go, Ew. 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 You 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 think that's going to, no. He makes it look attractive to us whatever the sin is. He makes it look attractive to us. I mean, 99% of the ads on TV make sin look attractive. I mean, we're using sex to sell Hardy's hamburgers now. I mean, for goodness sake, if you eat those, you ain't going to look like that. You're going to be 975 pounds of twisted steel and sex appeal. <laughs> You just are not, you know, you see all these pretty girls and they're just biting into these hamburgers and, and, and nobody's thinking about the hamburgers, by the way, nobody's going, wow, what a hamburger. He makes it look good for a season. I mean, it's going to appeal to us. But temptation is not a sin, but it does look good for a season. Thirdly, bad company corrupts good character. You know that. That's what Paul says. I tell you what, you hang around with Delilahs, you're going to get a haircut you weren't expecting. <laughs> there's, there's going to be something that happens to you. You hang around with Delilahs, you, you become like the people you spend time with. You need, you need to have good company. Now, does that mean we don't get to know lost people and hang around lost people? No, but you better have a base from which you build from and go out from. Amen. We are told to flee sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6:18, 1 Timothy 2, and 1 Corinthians 10, 14. We are told to flee sexual immorality. Number five. Caving into temptation leads to sins that destroy us and our witness. Caving into temptation leads to sins that destroy us and our witness. And you say, well, there are only a few people that know, well, it destroyed your witness with those few people. And so when we cave, we lose our credibility. Number six, Satan is cold and calculating. He will wear you out. If he is one thing, he is persistent. He will wear you out. He is cold and calculating. You see, he's going to find you at the top of your game when you have the most influence and the greatest opportunities, and that's when he's going to attack. Some of you will remember the illustration that John Morgan gave back in, I think, 1990 or 91 when he did a a wild game uh, banquet here. Uh, Nobody from PETA showed up that day, but um, anyway, you know, Aaron was a big, you know, don't kill deer and all this kind of stuff, and she walks out, and we, we got... You know the largest deer head collection in the world, and she runs into my office and says, "Dad, you've got to get this out of the church. This is just wrong." I said, "Honey, we're just going to go eat them in just a minute. You mean you can't do?" But you know, here's what John Morgan said. He said, "When you go on a wild game hunt for like a lion, a black maned lion, and he's uh, has killed one." He said, while you're hunting that lion, that lion is also hunting you. And he's watching you. And he said, if you have six native guides and six hunters, the lion, knowing that he is possibly threatened, will begin to look at the six native guides and the six hunters and he'll decide, the lion will decide, will I go after one of the six native hunters or will I go after one? Uh, guides or will I go after one of the hunters? And after he decides whether he's going to go after the natives or the hunters and that lion can distinguish it, then he decides which one he's going to go after. So you've got 12 and the lion decides which one. And once that lion decides that, when he decides that it's better for him to attack than to run, he will charge those 12 and ignore any shots, any distractions of any kind unless you kill him before he gets to the one that he's decided to get to. One of the men that used to be in this church has uh, done a lot of hunting in Africa, and he said, you know, he said, I was sitting under a tree, and I'd laid my bait out for this line, and I, you know, I knew I was going to get him that day. I'd been watching him, st- kind of stalking him from a distance for about three days, and I was sitting there, and so after a few hours, I went to check the bait, the, the meat, to make sure that, you know, it was still there and he hadn't, I had missed him in some way. And he said, and I came back to my spot where I was sitting and the lion had been there and marked the spot to let me know he knew where I was. By the way, Satan knows your number and he knows your weakness and he knows your frailty of your flesh. And he is calculating. He looks for the moment when he can do the most damage. So you have to beware. We are not ignorant of his devices. He is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Next, sin causes us to lose fellowship with God. He did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Maxine Hancock says, there is something even more sad about a person so insensitive, so spiritually enslaved, and blind by his own desires that he does not even know the Spirit of the Lord has taken his reluctant, sorrowful leave. And finally, Satan doesn't fill us with hatred for God, but with forgetfulness of God. He didn't fill us with hatred for God. He fills us with forgetfulness of God. Now, while the praise team's making their way up, you and I will probably not fall because we stop loving God. We will fall when we forget the goodness and the mercy and the grace and the love of God. Right. And the devil tells us and whispers to us, like he did to Adam and Eve, like he did to David like he's done to so many through the years, you deserve it. You have a right to that. You can get away with that. You don't have to answer anybody for that. And when he gets us at that point, he's got us. Because before the act, we have already had the deed in our heart. Because then we begin to plan and plot, how can we do this? And that's a dangerous place to be. So, Samson is a warning to us to stay fervent in our faith, to put on our armor, to remember that you can have a great beginning and have a lousy ending. And none of us want to be that, but left to ourselves apart from the power of the Holy Spirit and apart from God's grace and intervention and apart from us being constantly aware that we are under attack, we'll get sucked down. Happens to young people, but it happens to senior adults too. It's not ju- this is not just an issue for teenagers. This is an issue for all of us that we live the lives where we don't lose our testimony and wake up one day and not know that the Spirit of God has departed from us. Our prayer needs to be that every day we walk mightily in the Spirit of God. Let's stand together and let's sing.